it's me again. You're back with In Bed With Too Many Pillows. Uh, welcome back to the bed. Uh, this episode, uh, we talk about the film American Beauty with the incredibly talented James Baker, who's a senior lecturer at Chittagong University, co-artistic director of Bootworks Theatre, and he also hosts his own brilliant podcast, Bootworks Theatre Top Shop. So check that out. We've put links for all of that in the podcast bio, as well as links to the article which we mentioned in the main body of the show. Uh, it's chat this week about the politics of American beauty in the sort of post-Weinstein era and looking at the actions of an actor and his, his work and how we frame looking at those things. This episode, it's just me talking to our guest, but there are still some sound uh, noises and such going off. We've got a little bit of a funky robot noise happening and some bits are a little bit quiet. So just bear with us and I hope you enjoyed the show. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Welcome. It's nice, nice to be in Worthing, getting out of Chichester. Yes. Yeah. Out of that bubble and into this one. Is there a bubble? I don't know. We've, we've not really been here long enough to know just yet. Create one. But yeah. <laughs> I think that's the way to go. Is that there isn't a bubble, create one. It's that classic thing of everyone says that Worthing's on the up, but that's mostly the people that have just moved there. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's what's happening as the new people coming in is actually bringing it on the up. So it's, it's up to you now what to, it could be. To, <laughs> to really bring bring it to a new level. Do you want to talk a bit about like? Yeah, I could do. Yeah. yeah, just to sort of start us off. Um, well, uh, my name's James Bacon, and as you say, I'm a theatre artist. Um, although I've been a bit reluctant at that term, I tend to describe myself as a theatre maker because I can't handle the pretension of artist. <laughs> um, but actually, a theatre artist is probably closer to what I actually am. Uh, I've been making work with a theatre company called Bootworks for the last 10 years now. Um, and I'm one of three co-artistic directors, and we do all sorts of work for children and adults, ranging from um, sort of obscure durational live art pieces to the publication of books to um, end-on theatre performances to participative works um, and podcasts. We'll make a little bit of anything, really. We're the magpies of the, or the, the theatre wombles of the theatre world. <laughs> that's an that's a interesting sort of phrase. I quite like that. Yeah. Um, so you've sort of just found it that way. So sort of, sort of instead of saying, we're going to go and make everything, or have you sort of gone into it and you thought, actually, we'd like to do this as well. You sort of in like one direction. I think it's out. that we'll have a crack at anything. Um, so we started off in outdoor arts, which was, um, which entertained us for quite a long time before we wanted to go inside and have a dressing room. Yeah. There's nothing, (laughs) (laughs) not get changed in a portaloo in a field. Um, no, well, I think we make shows, um, or we make things that we're, no, how does it work? We find that we're interested in something. And then we'll have a discussion or an idea about how best to bring that idea to life for an audience. Uh, And that might be as a one-on-one theatre performance, or it might be in a a larger end-on show, or it might be through the writing of something, or uh, as a workshop, or or whatever else. 
So it's always sort of the idea that takes precedent, and then we'll find out the best way uh, to make that manifest, really. And then our producer is brilliant in trying to place whatever it is that we end up making into a place where people are able to see it. Yeah. So uh, that's always been a challenge, really. Hmm. Yeah, we've got to, we've got to work on our producer doing something well. Then. <laughs> um, the, the producer, we should say, is in the corner. Yeah. Ferreting away on producer-looking <laughs> things. <laughs> There's always a laptop with a producer and a latte. Like the contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so you talked about your podcast, which obviously is amazing. Bless you. Now, now there's a real sort of uh, precedence put upon me because <laughs> after this, I was like, oh well, oh yeah, James is really good at podcasts, and I'm very sort of uh, haphazard at best. So. Well, I don't think I am. I find, I kind of feel like I'm really finding my feet with it as well at the moment. I think I've just been fortunate in that the people I've decided to talk to. Are, brilliant <laughs> well that's what i've done as well, oh, so. well i was fishing for a compliment and there it arrived yeah it wasn't great but um we'll, we'll try our best so we're talking about you sent us like a lovely list yeah i did to, and i was like wow we've got so many different things city of edinburgh wimbledon what? i didn't really but know i didn't know if that was the place or the you know the, or tennis, the film or, <laughs> i love films the rom-com well. Oh, yeah, so... Yeah, well, I didn't really know... uh, I can't remember what the invitation was, other than to to do a podcast together. Um, So I I didn't know whether it it had to be about theatre interests or anything. So I thought I'd give you a selection of things in the hope that there might be some mutual ground between us. There was a lot. It was really nice. We sort of had to fight out on what we wanted to and we picked American Beauty which I think is really interesting because of the current climate um, in the industry as well as the film of itself and obviously having Kevin Spacey within it is uh, yeah I'm having uh, (laughs) internal ethical (laughs) debates with myself um, which is probably quite useful to talk about in this context yeah and it's nice for us it's like a little sort of feminist little theatre company for us to chat about those sort of things. Mm. So. so you've not seen American Beauty, have I you? had not seen it before. I watched it um, and I obviously was like, I'm not going to read into, you know, I, I'm not going to read into uh, that element, but you can't. What, the, the Kevin Spacey baggage? Kevin Spacey, but what he does, because there's, I don't know if everyone's seen it. If you haven't, you should watch it. We should maybe, maybe we should do a little do do, summary. Do you want to do a synopsis? Thing as a yeah, because I, after saying to you it was my favourite film in an email, I realised I hadn't seen it for years and I should probably revisit it. So I have rewatched it today, actually, this morning. Uh, just to make sure. <laughs> well, as I said, I haven't watched the film since, um, Harvey Weinstein, um, yeah. scandal and the hashtag MeToo movement and the cultural climate that we're in at the moment. So I don't know how I feel about rewatching it because I described it as my favourite film. I sort of wanted to see whether it was still my favourite film and whether I could separate, um, whether I could suspend disbelief and treat Lester Burnham, the character that yeah. uh, Kevin Spacey plays as differentiated from the the famous actor and the problems that go along with that. 
So that was my experiment that I did this morning. But the story is about a white middle-class family in the suburbs of America who seemingly have it all at their disposal and are living the white picket fence suburban ideal of American life and culture. Uh, And so close uh, below the surface is absolute... um, jadedness with their own existence with the the husband kevin spacey's character lester burnham is in a, a job that he hates in a really terrible um fractious relationship with his wife his wife um is miserable as well uh ends up having an affair the daughter has is a sort of teenage daughter and has all the insecurities that come with being a teenager uh, doesn't feel like she fits in at school, is slightly alternative, but feels the pressures to conform. Um, and it's all about really everyone in it is fucked up on some level. Um, and it just, it challenges lots of things about the life choices we make and the things that are important. So it's full of aspiration for money and success and the perception of, um, idealism. And yet everyone is unhappy within it. It's a really bleak film, but really beautifully shot, um, really exquisitely written, um, and really excellently performed. Annette Benning's amazing in it as the wife. Kevin Spacey is incredible as this um, stilted father. That, that, uh, you basically follow Kevin Spacey as an anti-hero because he's, um, his life is shit, but he does, he's the only one to do something about it, really. Yeah. He, um, he has this midlife crisis where he falls for uh, his daughter's teenage friend. Um, and he jacks his job in, buys a sports car, starts to work out, and then um, starts to hit on uh, the daughter's friend. Which, obviously, <laughs> it goes without saying, is hugely ethically problematic. Um and yet the writing is so rich that you can see why he's doing it and also on some level feel for him because he's the the only one that is managing to break this miserable cycle of suburban living, however problematic it is, which is why it's so such a complicated film uh, and an ethically really problematic one before even the <laughs> Kevin Spacey uh, allegations ever came to bear yeah it's it's really interesting because i i'd sort of i'd seen um parodies of it over the years and i'm i think because i've watched it so sort of late into because it's 1999 uh, when it was released so i feel like there's a lot of things that i have seen since that have sort of copied the style because i of sort of reading about it was quite sort of different oh, when right. it first was released and there's things now that i think I've seen those sort of tropes in other films, yeah. so you sort of don't see it with as fresher eyes as I could have, as well as the Kevin Spacey element, which I found quite troubling, and I really struggled to sort of get away from. I bet, uh, Especially yeah. in like the first sort of little while where you're sort of getting into it. But what really surprised me about the film was sort of almost comic element of it, because I hadn't really, it to me, it reads almost as a comedy in the first little while, the way his character reacts, and you sort of think this is... Certainly he sort of seems like a 
comic character in a very sort of real world, and I couldn't quite grasp into that. I think because I was yeah. in the back of my mind going, "Oh, I don't." You know, well, the difficulty of it, I suppose, is that the film then becomes almost parodic of his own life because there's so many comparisons uh, with abuses of power, with um, although he seemingly doesn't have homosexual tendencies, uh, at the end, uh, his neighbour, his really homophobic neighbour comes round and kisses him. Uh, so there's that sort of yeah. tension in it as well. There, yeah, there's all sorts in it that's kind of, but in terms of the comedy, one of the, I think one of my favourite lines from films, there is the, the opening sort of exposition where he's setting the character up. There's the line, uh, the, he's sort of looking in on his own life and it says, yep, that's me jerking off in the shower and that's going to be the high point of my day, which is so tragic as yeah. a, you know, as a, the best moment of this poor guy's day is going to be having a wank in a shower. Yeah. yeah, and it's something so bleak and miserable about that um, that it totally sets him up as a as a yeah. Persona. And then he has the moment. I mean, it's in those first sort of bits where he's setting up the character and the thing where he's walking along and the briefcase all sort of falls down. He's half asleep in the car where his wife's driving, and you sort of you feel for him in a sort of way, but he does seem to be sort of at, um, sort of disjointed within the film, like. It, could sort of like if you removed him or replaced him with a different character, it would read as a very sort of normal sort of film. And I think his, like, I'm sort of loath to say it, but his acting within it is, you know, it's really phenomenal because he sort of is the linchpin, but then it sort of makes me uncomfortable owning to that. Well, it's part, this is, uh, when you watch that film back, you kind of think, is he so good at playing this? sad, exploitative, complex character because he is a sad, complex, exploitative human. Does he tap... And you're an actor, <laughs> and, you know, a part of the profession and the discipline of acting, to some degree, it, through one methodology, is drawing upon your own personal life experience. Yeah. Does he know what it is to be exploitative? Does he know what it is to be hugely flawed as a human being? Does he know what it is to... um I don't know, to to live with great sadness and loneliness and yeah. whatever. I'm not, I'm by no means am I justifying any of his actions in real no. life, um, but perhaps the reason he is able to tap into those vulnerabilities um, and flaws as a human is because he's lived them and it's being made... That's what he's yeah. drawing upon when he's acting as Lester Burnham. I, I feel like there's so many scenes within it that hit the nail on the head on like current situations so crazy so when he's getting he sort of writes um he has to write a sort of report of what he thinks he gives to the company yeah. and he basically sort of is like nothing i don't you know he sort of sort of does a sort of things of fuck you to i'm not gonna be sort of playing your games i just want you to let me go and then he blackmail like he basically uses the premise of sort of sexual harassment as a blackmailing um, opportunity to get more money from this company and sort of uses all these dark secrets within the company about prostitution to get what he wants. And there's a real, I found that almost more uncomfortable than some of the other 
seeds that's so sort of within the system that we're sort of we've got post wine steam stuff it's that is it's not a comfortable thing to be watching for someone who has had these allegations against him yeah the irony is extreme in that moment yeah yeah (laughs) it's a a great scene but it's horrible and And you're like Rewatching that today, it made it apparent to me how similar that is to the Fight Club moment when Edward Norton is jacking in his job and then he starts punching himself in the face and saying, I'm going to tell everyone that you've beaten me up unless you agree to these demands. I know those, I mean, absolutely that moment is ironic beyond the pale now with the benefit of hindsight. When it's written, I mean, that's the moment that you sort of, however brilliant your job is, however um, much you enjoy your career or whatever else, I think there's always those moments where you want to, where you feel like sticking two fingers up to power and authority. And I think the moment, that little montage, however tragic it is as a midlife crisis, where he sells his crappy um, family car and then buys a cool car and then starts listening to rock and smoking pot and you know it's it's turn on tune and drop out yeah. you know it's that he's you fuck capitalism fuck this ideology that we've all we've got to live in suburban perfection i'm going to do what i want for a moment it's sad because it's a midlife crisis but actually i think there's a little something in all of us that wishes we can just go fuck it all off and <laughs> Just for a week or whatever. I mean, that's why people go to festivals, right? So yeah. they can suspend their everyday life for a few days, take drugs that they would not normally take, party like they were 18 again, and and suspend the fact that on Monday you've got to be back in the office writing a report. Yeah. What I like is that the, it uses, and I don't know if this is me reading it, but it seems to use the premise that the reason he's decided to go down the route he's decided like the smoking pot is because of the neighbour's son, who he sort of like that sort of, it's almost like weird sort of, not peer pressure, but they seem to be the catalyst. You've got him and you've got obviously the girl that he fancies, the teenager, and they seem to be like, he's like, well, I'm going to do stuff to impress teenagers and I'm going to be on that level. Mm. And that, that really resonates when he asks, towards the end, he asks the girl that sort of managed to get interested in him, how his daughter is he can't connect with his own daughter if he's connected with these other two teenagers mm. whatever way instead and that there's a real, I think there's a real sadness as well because he's having his midlife crisis and enjoying it but he seems to look at the other individuals in his family especially his wife and be like oh well she's so resigned to just being successful that she's miserable mm. I think that's an interesting sort of discourse it's so everyone is so insular and self-serving in it that it's a hot. I mean, it's really terrible to watch. Um, but I wonder whether there's, like you say, he finds this affinity with the teenage boy next door who's a bit odd, um, but does his own thing and yeah. plays to the beat of his own drum or whatever a little bit. And I, I do quite a lot of reading in and around the uh, development of children. And it's in those teenage years when identity formation is such a thing. It just feels like it should be the younger guy going, you know, trying to find a sense of self. And yet it's this middle-aged guy yeah. that um, 
is really struggling to work out who he is. And he's, I think this is so common with so many people where they just fall into the next stage of their life. And he's got, you know, he's got the mortgage and he's got the kids and he's got a decent job. And it's not, it doesn't feel like him. And I think the, that line at the end when the girl, when he eventually um, ends up nearly sleeping with the, the object of his desires, the, the girl who, yeah. you know, they sort of groom one another to some degree, him to her because she feels like she needs validation. And, well, um, actually, they both need validation, yeah. don't they? It's absolutely reciprocal. Um just misplaced. But when that moment happens and then they there's this moment of clarity where they both realise how superficial and vapid having sex together would be to validate yeah. one another's um, worth in any way. And then afterwards when they're sharing a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever and just having a chat, she asks him how he is. And I think there's that moment he responds with... It's been a very long time since anyone's asked me that. Yeah. And I think because he's living in this bubble where everyone's so insular, no one's really communicating with one another whatsoever. And I think people, um, men, women, get to a certain age whereby seemingly you've got it all sorted. You've got a mortgage and you've got children and you've got a good job and whatever. And you're still full of exactly the same vulnerabilities that you had when you were 16 or 18 or whatever. Or always, because everyone's always full of vulnerabilities. And people stop asking. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So it's this kind of like this amazing moment when this eighteen-year-old has the foresight and gets beyond herself to be able to go. How are you then? Yeah. Old man, that's clearly just as fucked up as I am. Yeah, and it's interesting because the boy next door has got like forty. He's a drug dealer, isn't he? And he's sort of he's got forty thousand dollars. Yeah. He's got like, so he's the guy he... that's got it most together. Yeah. And he's... and he's the one who's portrayed from the outset as being like, as having been in a sort of, like, you know, being through rehab, a mental, military school, and sort of have all these problems, and they sort of really sort of put him as the outside, especially uh, in terms of cinematography, because he's always filming. Yes, that's, yeah. And that's that true. seems like a real sort of strong thing is that the first thing we see is when it sets up is the video of his daughter talking about her dad. And that's because he seems to tie it all together as being this weird outside loner, but in fact, he's kind of knows what he's doing mm. and where he's going. I think that's really interesting against the sort of adults and how they react. It sort of goes on that full journey, doesn't it, whereby he's initially he's the other and by the end you think no actually he's <laughs> he's the only one that's got his shit together enough to be doing his own thing everyone else is fucked up yeah and she and the the daughter's friend really seems to just be like a plot device she seems to catch she's not really because oh, i went into it thinking oh it's all going to be i imagined it was going to be that they're having an affair the entire way through but it it's it's much cleverer than that in the sense that it isn't sort of fulfilled. But I sort of thought she was going to be in it a lot more than she was because I remember, I've seen that um, Adam and Joe had this sort of series and they did toy versions of stuff and they did very few toys. I think it's like a Barbie with a rose petal. So I remember all of those seeing those yeah. scenes in sort of parody version. I was like, well, this is going to be a lot of sort of like obsessive affair things but it's it's much more than that because it's about how this sort of developed um from just seeing her do a 
weird chill eating times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that's it. Yeah, it becomes a bit Chicago, that sequence, yeah. doesn't it? She suddenly ends up in the spotlight. Yeah. But that's interesting. That's one of the things that I thought, I don't know how much this was used prior to this, because there's a lot of um, sort of sort of cinema techniques which I have seen sort of watered-down versions of in recent years, which you kind of think, because it's Sam Mendes' film, and he's very good visually, mm. I think. Um, but like the, the repeating shots where everything sort of goes about three times. Mm. I've seen watered down versions of that in films like more recently, and I sort of think this must this is an iconic film. Mm. And I'm glad I had to watch it, but I kind of wish I had. I have sort of mixed feelings do I have wanted to watch it before yeah. or not? Um, because I did enjoy it, sort of in spite of myself. Yeah, I can totally understand why it's a... Yeah. Is it going to still stay in your favourite film? Yeah, I think it is. As I think it's a piece of work, it's... Uh, the only thing... What occurred to me today whilst watching it, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is the bits that felt a little bit... The, the dialogue between the two girls sometimes felt a little bit contrived. I think to some degree that... No one speaks how they really speak in real life when it comes to decent (laughs) filmmaking because there's always an element of the hyperbolic or like telecasting the meaning of certain scenes or lines of dialogue or whatever else. But it's there's something slightly insincere about the way that the two, those two particular characters talk with one another. But then I've never been a teenage girl, so they uh, what I found is they were talking like they were in public. A lot when they were in private. So there's the scene where he's listening in in the doorway, and I think what I would say that didn't slightly ring true about the conversation is that they have these conversations in the car. And you sort of think, I don't know how, but then it moves plot forward. And I think there is a, I think as much as it might not be the most sincere, hearing um, James' friend, the daughter's friend, um, talk about how men you were. Like, it might not be real, mm. because I don't think many girls would express it in that way. Yeah. But it's so interesting, because there's an element of it that is sort of unspoken and unsaid, I think. Um, and the idea of that really sort of um, caught with me, because I've read The Ways of Seeing John Burton, and he talks about how women only ever see themselves through men's eyes, so you always think about your appearance and how... You look. You don't see a woman looking at a woman. She, she sees it looking through a man's eyes and how that reflects mm. the book. That really captured it in that scene where she's talking about when she changed, and she says she changed about twelve, which is sort of a horrific thought. She says about walking into like a classroom and sort of seeing the boys react differently to her. And mm. um, that's kind of awful. But I sort of you sort of can see that there's a truth in that. I don't know how aware a twelve year old girl would be. Yeah. Because my little sister's eight years younger than me and I mean it's not now, but a couple of years ago I sort of realised people watching my sister in a different way. She's wholly unaware of it. Right. And it's it's really like it's uncomfortable and I think that is what the film explores. Um Yeah, I think it it's that it's the phenomenon of it's that line of dialogue where she says about um, she knew from early on that the guys in her class were jerking off over her, 
and that if guys look at her as someone that they want to have sex with, that sort of means she's a somebody or means that she's... I can't remember the phrase that she uses, but it's that it's basically the impression is she's got a crack at being a model, if that's yeah. the, the upshot of it. And it's just... I think we all know that there are some women who use that phenomena as a... Oh, God, what am I trying to say here? There, it, there's a certain cultural, however terrible it is, agency in looking good and yeah. being an object of being an object of desire. I just don't think I was really troubled by the line, just the say the candid saying of it. I mean, I don't like it as a phenomenon, but when I think because it's written by Alan Ball, who is probably more empathetic to the character of Lester Burnham than it. He is a yeah. a sixteen year old girl. I think, I, and I'm interested that you picked up that she feels more like a plot device than a character yeah. to drive the. Because you look, you when you think of American Beauty, you think of the image of the rose petals falling on the yeah. naked body. That's the the promotional image, you know what I mean? And yet, she doesn't really feel like a significant part of the film. No, and that's and that's what surprised me. But then. I kind of it was really interesting as well. It was the sort of Weinstein phenomenon that it's written with this awareness because she says about the scene where she does modelling and she says Oh, it's like she, the Terry Richardson sort of reference, like yeah. the the of course I slept with a photographer because that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's a sort of like an aware and I think that's the thing with the black with the sort of sexual harassment blackmailing scene as well, is there's an awareness it's a norm because she says everyone you know like you say of course I did everyone does it this is how you make your way mm. and there there is that sort of awareness of, sort of the predatory nature of it and that she enjoys it but it isn't true because yeah. you get to the end and she's never slept with anyone and she's very insecure about yeah. sort of the whole process yeah so she's bought into that it's, but it's not a myth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and I think that's really, I think it's really interesting because it's uncomfortable because of the Kevin Spacey element of it being sort of perpetrator of um, this sort of awful harassment that sort of ties up me to um, things. And his things with Anthony Rapp, which is the guy who, who was 14 at the time. And that's, that's really horrific to think about. But there is, I think it's written with an awareness, but it's sort of where he sort of glides over it for a joke almost but if you there's a lot of programs that you watch there's American sitcoms that have jokes about Harvey Weinstein being a lech that were written 10 years ago and you sort of look back on it and go oh that's um yeah it's yeah. so people knew and that's and that's the thing I think especially with that film is that the awareness levels in making that film I can't I can't imagine mm. but I think it's interesting this is so it's still your favorite film yeah I think so i think I think it's a real i'm I'm haunted by it almost it's like I found watching the last scenes in it today I still had the same sort of visceral um reaction to it that I did the first time I watched it yeah. and I think it is a really compelling performance by a deeply flawed human. Um, and it, it, it's that thing of if you can separate um, 
the person from their actions. Yeah. Uh, and some people can and some people can't. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, I was so disappointed when the stuff came out yeah. about Kevin Spacey. Cause you know when, and it's the same with Louis C.K. as well. When you're a real fan of someone, uh, someone's body of work, yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about K-Pax. That was a shit film. I'm <laughs> saying Kevin Spacey's everything he's done has been great, but he, Superman Returns. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. And I'm not a film buff. I just really think it's a tremendous piece of uh, direction and writing and performance from Annette Benning and Kevin Spacey. Yeah, and it doesn't. Yeah, it it makes it even more complicated to watch. I think. And I hadn't watched it since the allegations. Yeah. And perhaps I, had I not told you it was your favourite film, perhaps I'd never watch that film again. Yeah, but that's what, it's actually one of the reasons we sort of were led to pick it in the end, because I'm interested, because I read um, an article, and it's called, What Do We Do With The Art Of Monstrous Men? Mm. And it was in the Paris Review um, by Claire Dedera, which was not how you pronounce it, I'm really sorry. Um, but... She, it's basically, it's talking about people like Woody Allen. Now, Midnight in Paris is, it will always be in my top ten. Right, yeah. And I went into it with not complete awareness of, you know, I went through a bit of a Woody Allen stage sort of in my mid-teens, so I wasn't really aware of the things he's done, with you know, like marrying his adopted daughter and things like that, so... And it's it's the article talks about do you, can you allow a piece of art to stand, knowing what's happened um, and what they've done. But they talk. She talks about it in like a broader sense of like you can't you know Picasso did all you know. There's lots of flawed artists out there. So what can you do to watch a piece or you know how can you sort of react to that and it's sort of that disappointment. In men and women that have done things, and you think, oh, I love their mm. work, and how you make that distinction. So that was really interesting for me. Sort of, it's probably yeah. I mean, it's the danger of pedestaling people in the first place. Yeah. Is where you can only really fall from grace when you're <laughs> exactly. um, as lauded as someone like Kevin Spacey. I it I, I it's a really complex ethical yeah. question. My Everything for me boils down to a sort of um, give everyone a second chance, never a third, which is a ridiculous way to think about every the life and the world. But it's like it's kind of like the death penalty, and whether you know, I think I can conceivably imagine how someone might murder someone. I'm not a murderer, but I can conceivably <laughs> understand how there are. Certain circumstances might align in a certain way that you might end up killing someone. Now, if that happens, you should go to prison and you should serve, you should think really carefully about what you've done. You should be offered support to rehabilitate if you've got uh, a mental condition or if you, uh, I don't know, people should be given a a chance to redeem themselves. If you are perpetually a murderer, you know, or a rapist or an abuser, I think it's a different thing. I think it's it becomes part of a uh, a way of being. You know, you after the first time you've abused someone, you've had time to think, well, was that a right or a wrong thing to do? And if you do that again, it's a really, di- you know what I mean? 
it becomes very difficult to forgive that person for things that they've done for me. And I think Kevin Spacey is that person. He used his position of power to repeatedly abuse people that were vulnerable to his presence in their lives. So I just, I don't know. I think people are all flawed and people do all sorts of horrible, terrible things in their lives, some of which they become accountable for, some of which they get away with on some level. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there's also the reaction to it, because like you're saying, it's sort of carried on. It's, it's not just been like allowing that time space, but his apology was... Was horrendous. Was horrific. And you, and you sort of think, actually, that's not taking accountability in any sort no, no, no. of way. Um, and to conflate it with the um, sort of outing himself. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for the the gay community, but... I was offended, but you know, yeah. it's that, it's that kind of, oh, I'm trying to work myself out. So it's justifiable to abuse people in these kind of ways. It's not, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he sort of stood within a sort of early sort of wave, I think, as well. Kevin's face, it sort of seemed to be in the early days of it. And I just thought that's worst handling. Mm. I could imagine. What do you think of the, uh, I really, I'm realizing in the speaking of all of these words how um, underdeveloped my thinking in and around this particular topic is. Um, but it's an interesting one. What do you think about um, holding people accountable? Can you still enjoy the artwork of people that you know to be uh, flawed to that degree? Yes. It's I, I, unfortunately, I am very much of the opinion that it's to each case. I can't make a blanket yeah, statement yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. I'm going to be able to deal with. And and it's really weird because if you look at it against like Harvey Weinstein, who's obviously a producer on all these films, the Weinstein Company, that's his name. Mm. I think actually, if you you know that's how much of influence he's had over all these women. Actually, appalling the, the sort of lengths to which he's gone. But then, how many films do you think that that colours it? Because it's a very different thing watching something that he's produced to watching Kevin Spacey in American Beauty for me. Because I'm always going to be thinking about Kevin Spacey because he's on the screen mm. and sort of that sort of like the Wizard of Oz notion of the man behind the curtain yeah, yeah. that's caused this atmosphere and these things on set. I find. I find almost more sort of problematic in terms of it because you think, oh, I could almost forget what's happened. And I wondered if um, Kevin Spacey is obviously a very good actor, and I wondered if, like, if you weren't watching something that was so inherently about that about topic, that topic yeah. how that would sit. I'm not saying Superman Returns because. I'm not sure that was his best work, but there have been lots well, of other... I think it all started to come about when I watched Baby Driver. Because I yeah. think... I don't know, my, maybe my chronology's out of whack here. But I remember watching that, or at least thinking afterwards, oh, maybe he plays these really pro- creepy characters really well, because he is a bit of a creepy character. Yeah. And he is a bit shady, and he does have that darkness within him. I think, also, 
also what's kind of a really problematic about some like the Louis C.K. thing particularly is how and the Harvey Weinstein allegations is how abnormal the acts seem to be. The the masturbating in front of someone in a room is really peculiar behaviour. Is it though? Because my personal feel I know it is, and it isn't something that you're gonna see on an everyday basis. And this is my my sort of not gripe with the Times Up movement, because it's obviously it's needed, but it's restricted to sort of Parliament and the acting industry. Um, but that is on so many different systems of power and it's a very different thing being able to sort of call out Kevin Spacey because most people have heard of Kevin Spacey. It's very different being able to put these sort of big names to sort of small scale within different um, companies and that and how sort of frequent it is. And we went to the Time's Up March and actually the amount of women who, you know, had Flash a little more masturbate in front of them is, is actually a much higher um, level than I think we'd own to um, as sort of society. I don't think we're comfortable with that. But the idea that it's in this sort of show business situation, <laughs> I don't have a solution. <laughs> no, I mean, that is the, that's the summary, isn't it? It's really difficult. It's, yeah. Yeah. I went to a talk with Grace and Perry and they sort of say, you know, they did an award for um, biggest contributor to feminist rights of the year. They gave it to Donald Trump because they were saying that he's done so much in terms of... Oh, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I see. It was, he made it, Grace and Perry made him the sort of a, a medallion right. because, you know, obviously it's the to thing and it's just this bum with a fart coming out of it and all the women are under like little sort of a female symbol beneath it in their masses um, and what he's done in terms of making people more aware of, of the abuse power systems is why they awarded him yeah, and I think there's the same same sort of feeling, it sort of seems that people are sort of thinking actually we really need to have a look at what we're doing. I got about an hour and a half into American Beauty and I was like, I don't think I can carry a watch on this, it's making like, because it, it's good, but it made me so mm. uncomfortable, I was sort of quietly seething and talking back to the television, which, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. always a really good move, I was like, oh, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're a piece of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah, I think, why for me, why it's such a good film is that you see everyone is fucked up, and yet you can see why everyone has become the way they've become, living in the culture that they live in. And I think that's part of it, addressing the culture, because that's clearly what needs to shift. Individuals are always going to be flawed, but the culture needs to move in order for individuals to shift the way that they perceive their own actions I think in all, in all of this you know, when we've got a figurehead Donald Trump who says it's okay to grab women by the pussy he is a representative of a country of a country with thousands and thousands of people living in it and you know a significant proportion of that country voted that into power regardless of what they heard it's a frightening um, position to be in 
And I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you think that film could work if they did, like, English beauty? Could you do a version that's in the suburbs of some... Do you think it would still work or translate? Yeah, I think the the themes are universal, actually. I think... I think a lot of teenagers feel insecure and are seeking validation. I think there's a lot of middle-aged people that feel knitted into a world that they don't know how they got into and want an escape of some kind through whatever vice is presented to them. Um, I think the ideology of the capitalist critique within it is apparent that actually having stuff and a job does not buy you happiness. Um, yeah, I think it's totally, it's frighteningly transferable. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see that version. <laughs> see, see if I get on with it better or worse with someone that hasn't got some reputation. I wonder if it will be subjective, a remake. Because you wonder with the sort of, like, Christopher Plummer being put into All the Money in the World. Because that was Kevin Spacey. I don't know anything. So, so, so I'm not a very big post- film buff. <laughs> honest, <laughs> there was quite a few which films is why I offered you American Beauty or Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves. It's <laughs> a topic very, to talk about. Similar. Yeah, I mean, but there was it's basically in post edit, and they and and the BBC had to as well because they cancelled an entire BBC drama over Christmas because because it was someone who was linked into harassment and abuse claims so they had to sort of get rid of it and Christopher Plummer was put in at the last minute to replace Kevin Spacey I believe um, and he was put in instead and he was the people they they wanted originally or that's what they've said right yeah they said oh that's all, who we always wanted but they had to cut out his entire performance and you sort of wonder in years to come sort of the reaction to this Seeing as we've got such a penchant for remakes at the moment, it's, anyway. I mean, it's quite interesting that we're, we're, because these powerful predators have never been called to account, mm. it's interesting how it, we're having to forge the methodology to deal with the, you know, so the rules have now become if you're linked to sexual allegations, you are no longer employed, but you know, you're no longer on Netflix and you're no longer in Baby Driver and you're no, <laughs> and it, it's quite interesting that these big corporate organizations are having to sort of, for the first time, invent policy and procedure yeah. as to how we deal with. But I assume you'll still be able to like buy copies of these things. You know what I mean? Like it's all very well taking it off Netflix, but no one's gonna, you know, uns, you're sort of mm. de-stock at HMV or somewhere, or mm. Amazon aren't going to go, well, we're not going to sell that ever again. I'm trying to because think... Because you'd have, like, a really sparse... You'd end up getting quite sparse, because on a sort of broader scale... I suppose scale, there are precedents in terms of... You no, know, you don't hear a lot of Gary Glitter played on the radio anymore. You know what I mean? And it yeah. is a... We do... We already have a precedent for dismissing a body of work for people that become... Uh, yeah, infamous. But it's interesting how we do... In terms of filmmaking, I mean, however integral he is to this particular film, I feel sorry for Sam Mendes and Alan Ball and Annette Benning and yeah. all these other people who are fucking brilliant in this piece of work. Who And all of the people that love that film. You know, it's like one bad apple. <laughs> you've ruined it. Yeah, 
and you've ruined it for everyone. But should we? Um, it, but it's I don't know. It becomes that thing of like, unless you remember the past, history will repeat itself. Yeah. I kind of don't want American Beauty to be, or any piece of art to be wiped off the map because the artist or the person that is at the centre of the thing becomes um, someone's going to make this. a point of contention. In ten years' time, someone will make a film about the making of American Beauty <laughs> or something. That will be the next. There will be a film, a biopic about the sort of. Post Weinstein, which would be, I think, I think that will happen. I can imagine it happening when you've had like the films about Trump and the news and stuff like that. Mm. I can imagine it happening. But it's interesting because so many people say that it's like it's going to lose momentum, the actual movement in of itself, because once you sort of try to clear out Bollywood and Parliament addressing it on a small scale, it's very difficult. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, the one the ones that I find interesting are the ones that have got claims, but that's they're still being employed. They're they've sort of been wiped away, sort of thing, and it's being described as like a witch hunt. Thing. <laughs> People seem to get the wrong idea of who the witches are yeah. as well. <laughs> it's like these Hollywood witches, and we're like, no, this isn't. It's not the women that are making the claims that the witches in this instance. Unfortunately, we lost some of the sound here, so we're going to rejoin the conversation at a later point. One of the films I watched this week, I can't remember what it's called. It's called, like, The Pursuit of Happiness. It's not called that. Two two sort of affluent, beautiful European couple go to America, buy a school bus, gut it out, and then drive around Alaska and South America for a little bit. And it is that sort of let's leave our lives and go and explore the world for a little bit, which is always appealing. I watch that and think, oh, I don't have to do that now because I've watched a Netflix documentary about it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's pacified my desire to quit my job and sell my house and whatever. I don't, I think, I've been in relationships with people that live for the wage and, you know, want to do that uh, climb the ladder thing. And I don't think it translates to happiness necessarily. And I think, but I think we're constantly sold the um, perception of what constitutes happiness, and it's ninety percent of the time it's easier to buy into it and buy the latte and buy the MacBook and get the mortgage and upgrade the car and whatever it is than actually think for yourself and think, oh well, what actually would make me happy in this moment? I think you're all right as long as you're not like aware of it. I often think that because we have obviously lectures at university saying you're just buying this isn't actually constituting as you being happy and I think as long as you're not aware mm. you might be alright. Mm. I feel like you can enjoy things on a very different level as long as you're not super aware. If you've got goals within like getting things I think that's great. A lot of philosophers commit suicide and I think <laughs> I think there's that or there's always that if you think too deeply about the world you're probably in t- <laughs> I, I think I think there's a a, a superficial some people you'll meet who are inanely happy because they don't think too hard about the world yeah. and what is it if it's that people that th- feel see the world as a tragedy and people that think see it as a comedy have you ever heard this adage? I think it's bollocks, frankly. I haven't. I think, I think everyone thinks and feels and sees the world as both a comedy and a tragedy. But it's that, it's the interpretation of it. 
I mean, and what the oh god, I don't know. Get yeah. too it's like a, it's a simplified version. Of <laughs> yeah, the yeah, yeah. As, as most of these sort of sort of cliche, not cliches, but sayings are, you think, yeah, but that might be a little bit reductive. Yeah, but yeah. Fair enough. I think that's a good sort of place to wrap it up. Apart from asking how many were in your bed, how many pillows do you think constitute as too many? Because now, this is a like a real gripe of mine. There's an excessive amount of pillows here. Well, some of them are cushions. So, uh, <laughs> Let's be very clear on the difference. Yeah. So I'm a... See, for aesthetic purposes, you want more... A, a beautifully plumped okay, I agree with that. bed is aesthetically more appealing to get into. The moment I get into bed, I throw them on the floor and only is sleep the, with one very slimline pillow. It's the exact right answer. Oh, so good. Right. That I'm is thrilled. exactly it. However, the more scatter cushions, the better. Uh, who doesn't like a scatter who cushion? Who doesn't one, like? one of my mem- memories from sort of watching films was that my aunt took me to see Revenge of the Sith. I think it's called that. And I can't wait to see how you relate this to scatter cushions. <laughs> my aunt just turned around to me. It's obviously Anakin Skywalker's apartment. She just went, Darth Vader doesn't have scatter cushions. <laughs> <That's excellent. laughs> and it's my, it's my abiding memory of it. And it's just, Darth Vader doesn't have scatter cushions. What I so. find hilarious is that this is, we've talked, spent an hour talking about a film that's about escaping middle class trappings and then we're finishing on the abundance of scatter cushions. Around me, <laughs> currently, <laughs> I failed in everything <laughs> I ever wanted to be. I'm so sorry. That's just the formatting. I'm <laughs> Should pick a different company title. But thank you so much. No, thank you. It's a pleasure.